In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. May His grace and His blessing be with us now and unto the age of all ages. Amen. I welcome all of you once again to our weekly Orthodox Bible study. This is our 22nd week studying the book of Genesis, and the fourth week we've spent covering the amazing and beautiful life of the Holy Patriarch Abraham and his family. Last week we concluded with Genesis 16, which came after the pivotal Genesis chapter 15, the chapter in which Abram received two distinct theophanies from God after his ordeal in rescuing his nephew Lot and the possessions of the king of Sodom from certain invading kings. In these theophanies, God reiterated the covenant he made with Abram and promised him a son and many descendants as well as the promised land. So Genesis 15 really is a pivotal chapter in the life of Abram. And you will remember that after God made these promises to Abram, uh, he did not have a son. And so his wife, Sarai, conceived this idea in which she would give to her husband her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and Hagar would have intercourse with Abram, and they would conceive a son. And in fact, this is what happened. But unfortunately, when Sarai saw that Hagar had conceived with her husband, she started to resent Hagar and treat her badly. So Hagar fled from the household of Abram. And now we're going to pick up her story as she is in the wilderness by herself. This is Genesis chapter 16, verses 7 through 9. Now the angel of the Lord found her, i.e. Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. So, reading this, the first question that may be in our minds is, who is this angel of the Lord who appears to Hagar? Honestly, this is an open question. In the Old Testament, the phrase angel of the Lord appears approximately 60 times. And in all of his appearances, we see this angel as a special servant of God who helps accomplish God's will among his people. And in some instances, the angel of the Lord cannot be distinguished from God himself, like in this account of Hagar, because the angel speaks to her in the first person, as we shall see. He tells her, I will multiply your descendants. However, this doesn't necessarily mean that the angel of the Lord was God or a pre-incarnate form of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our father among the saints, Saint Didymus the Blind, one of the deans of the great ancient catechetical school of Alexandria, which was the greatest institution of Christian education in the early church, he teaches us that the angel of the Lord is oftentimes associated with God because he speaks the words of God. However, this doesn't necessarily mean he is God, but rather he has God inside of him. So it's by no means a stretch for us to say that the angel was not speaking his own words to Hagar, but God's which is similar to what any prophet does. When the holy prophet 
Esaias or Isaiah prophesied, for example, he sometimes spoke in his own person as a man who had the prophetic spirit of God within him. In one verse he said, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. At other times Isaiah spoke the very words of God, especially when he adds, Thus says the Lord to his sentences. So, for example, in one verse he said, I made the earth and created man upon it. In both cases, it is God speaking through the person just as it is God speaking through the angel, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the angel was a pre-incarnate form of God. St. Didymus gives us an important point when he tells us that participation in God confers also the authority of God, and because of God's dwelling in angels and prophets, those who share in him are called gods. So a little bit later when Hagar calls the angel Lord, it does not necessarily mean that the angel is God himself. According to St. Didymus, if one looks at the minister, these are words of angels, but if one looks at the, at the sense, they are the words of God. The last point I want to make about the identity of the angel of the Lord is that, according to many modern biblical scholars, there are enough notable similarities between the Septuagint and the Greek New Testament to make a case that the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is the same angel who announced the events of the Nativity in the New Testament. And so that would be, of course, the holy archangel Gabriel. So there is that idea among modern scholars. Um, so it's an open question, and we can't say for sure that this was the pre-incarnate Christ. It might very well have been, but it could also have been an angel who had the Lord speaking through him, as was the case with many prophets, as St. Didymus uh, teaches us in his commentary. Now that we have spoken a little bit about the angel of the Lord, I would like to say a few words about Hagar and her character. I told you when we started our discussion of Abram and Sarai that we have to really scrutinize their actions to see what kind of character they had, because the narrative doesn't really tell us much about them. And it's the same with Hagar. We know very little about her, However, on the basis of this dialogue with the angel of the Lord, we can see that Hagar did possess a measure of virtue. Of course, she did flee from her mistress Sarai after she herself behaved badly, which was of course the wrong thing to do. But we see in this passage that an angel takes the time to converse with her and shows concern for her, and that tells us something about her character. According to St. Didymus, Hagar was also virtuous because Sarai chose her from among all of the household as the one who would have relations with her husband and conceive a child. And he tells us that the reason Hagar was chosen out of all the other women in Abram's household was her virtue. Also, when the angel questioned her, she responded truthfully and acknowledged Sarai as her mistress. She didn't say anything bad about Sarai, and so we see from her response that Hagar had a measure of a good character. Now when the angel confronts Hagar, we notice something really interesting. Despite the care and love he shows her from God, 
he nonetheless affirms her position in society as a slave. We see this in his words, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? So in his first words, the angel reminds Hagar that even if she is carrying Abram's child in her womb, Sarai is nonetheless her mistress. The angel tells her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Hagar is not simply encouraged to return to Sarai, but moreover she is to humble herself before her mistress. And as a result of the angel's apparition out of nowhere in the desert and his words, Hagar is comforted and her thoughts were settled. And this is what angels do, isn't it? They bring us consolation from God, they restore our spirit, and they grant us abundant comfort, as we will see in this next passage. This is Genesis 16, verses 10 and 11. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly, so that they shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son, you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. So the angel of the Lord further consoles Hagar by telling her that the son born to her, Ishmael, will have many descendants, they will be so numerous that they cannot be counted. Why? Because the Lord has heard your affliction. So look at the great care and the great compassion that God shows even to Sarai's slave. In his reflection on the story, St. John Chrysostomos sees this as a lesson for us concerning what great advantage comes from tribulation and adversity. Whenever someone is suffering some kind of misfortune, we comfort them with the knowledge that this misfortune oftentimes produces some benefit. Here the slave Hagar left the home where she enjoyed great prestige as the mother of Abram's child, and as she wandered in the desert she was isolated and deprived of the great prosperity she once enjoyed. When she called upon the Lord, albeit not by words but by her broken spirit, she received a prompt response. Chrysostomus teaches us that we as well should not be distressed when we are humbled by the coming of some tribulation or adversities, in fact, he tells us openly that nothing is so advantageous to our nature as a humbling experience. In adversity, the Lord helps us when we pray to him fervently and listen to him with a contrite heart. This is why the angel of the Lord added, Because the Lord has heard your affliction after he promised Hagar wonderful things concerning her son Ishmael. We continue reading Genesis 16:12. He shall be a wild man, his hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. So the angel of the Lord then prophesies concerning the character of the child born to Hagar. He will be bold and warlike, and will constantly live in aggression towards his neighbor. As many of you know, Ishmael is oftentimes considered to be the forefather of the Arab people 
while Isaac is considered the forefather of the Jewish people. And indeed, the Jews and Arabs are closely related since they both share Abraham as their forefather and their patriarch. The Jews proclaim that they are the legitimate heirs of the promises God made to Abram through the son of his wife Sarai, and the Arabs, on the other hand, consider themselves the heirs of the same promises through Ishmael, the son Abram had with Hagar. And this is why, perhaps, there is constant tension in the Middle East, especially over the land of Palestine and the city of Jerusalem. Both peoples believe that they are the rightful heirs of this land. Now many say that the description of Ishmael's character bears many similarities with the general perception of Arabs today, but I prefer not to make any broad judgments or statements because that's beyond the scope of our spiritual Bible study. Let's continue reading. Genesis 16 verses 13 through 16. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God who sees. For she said, Have I also here seen him who sees me? Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. Observe, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was eighty-six years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So at this point, Hagar calls on the name of the Lord and names the well in that place, the well where I saw him who sees me. In the Septuagint, the name is the well where I saw him face to face. And this continues the tradition that we saw earlier in Genesis of naming places according to what happened at that place, such as, for example, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was named this because of what happened when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and ate of its fruit. St. John Chrysostomus notes how Hagar called upon the name of the Lord after the angel departed, and for him this showed her thanksgiving and gratitude for what the Lord had done for her. He believes that Hagar's nice and proper response was the result of her becoming wiser after suffering tribulation. And indeed, Chrysostomus teaches us that this whole story of the birth of Ishmael teaches us the advantage of suffering tribulation. On the one hand, we see the great restraint of Abram in appeasing Sarai when she was upset for the sake of keeping peace in the household. On the other hand, we see the benefit that comes from tribulation in the flight of Hagar from her mistress and what happened as a result. And with these examples in mind, we should always remember that afflictions and tribulations help us grow closer to God when we approach Him with troubled hearts and warm tears. For this reason, all of us should bear our afflictions, whatever they may be, we should bear them equally and with nobility of heart and purity of spirit so that they will be advantageous to us in our spiritual growth. This part of the story also teaches us how we should deal with our husbands and wives. We should not be too demanding on them even if we think they deserve it, but instead our goal should be to remove 
every cause of sadness and bring about peace within the household. St. John Chrysostomus offers a few beautiful meditations on wives in particular. He teaches us that a wife is given as an assistance or a partner to the husband so that the husband, strengthened by her support, may succeed in withstanding all of the tribulations against him in the world. If a wife is discreet and restrained, she will make everything light and easy for her husband and be able to transform any storm in the home into peace. Of course, the same applies to husbands. They are not to abuse their authority as the head of the household, but instead they must yield to whatever is good for their wives. Whenever husbands and wives treat each other with this level of love and respect, all good things will come from the marriage and nothing will hurt them because nothing can overcome the harmony of a righteous couple in the sight of God. Abram and Sarai had this relationship despite the severe challenges they endured, but we see how they overcame everything through their love and harmony. Let's continue reading. We are now in Genesis 17, verses 1 and 2. When Abram was ninety-nine years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. So we begin our discussion of Genesis 17 with God appearing to Abram in his 99th year of life. And there is a reason why Abram's age is mentioned. I told you before that after Abram and Sarai escaped from the famine and the abduction of Sarai in Egypt, they came to Canaan and dwelt there for ten years. During this time Abram did not have any children, although God had promised him ten years earlier that his descendants would be more numerous than the stars. At the end of the last chapter, we heard how Ishmael was born when Abram was 86 years old, which means that he came to Canaan in his mid-70s. And at the beginning of this chapter, we see that Abram is now 99 years old when God appears to him, and as we will see, he reaffirms the covenant between himself and Abram. He also sets in motion the events leading up to the birth of Isaac. Now why does God wait so long to fulfill his promises to Abram? After all, Abram has to wait 10 years until Ishmael is born, and then another 13 years until the events leading up to the birth of Isaac occur. Throughout these 23 years, Abram manifests great faith, even in the face of tribulation and adversity, such as the dispute over Hagar. According to St. John Chrysostomus, God tests Abram and purifies him through these tribulations until he becomes like pure gold, purified in the furnace. Of course, God doesn't need to test Abram because he knows Abram's character and the wonderful way in which he will respond. However, God tests him for our sake, to give us an example of righteousness through faith. This is the overshadowing principle that covers our discussion of the life of Abram. We're focusing on the level of righteousness that he attained simply by having complete and unwavering faith in God. 
Of course, we can't overlook the fact that God appeared to Abram. As we said in one of our early discussions, this does not mean that God appeared to Abram in his divinity. St. John Chrysostomus is quick to note this. But when you hear appeared, don't suspect anything ordinary or think that divine, irresistible power was seen by bodily eyes, but rather imagine everything in a reverent manner. In other words, we don't know the nature of this appearance, but what we can say with certainty is that God did not appear in the fullness of his divinity to Abram. Instead, he granted Abram a vision of him. Now at this point, God says to Abram, I am Almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. And this is in the Masoretic text. And I think this is one verse in which we can definitely prefer the Septuagint text because the Septuagint has more meaning here. In the Septuagint, the verse reads, I am your God, be well pleasing before me and become blameless. I don't know why the Masoretic text altered the verse from I am your God to I am Almighty God, but St. John Chrysostomus actually makes the point that God does not simply say, I am the God, but rather, I am your God. He sees this as a sign of God's great love and compassion for each person. He added the pronoun your to show his great love for us. It's not uncommon for us as God's creatures to address him, O oh my God, but for him, the creator of all things, the maker of heaven and earth and everything in them, to address us individually saying, I am your God, is simply unheard of. His love for us is really beyond our comprehension. Now we continue Genesis 17, verses 3 to 8. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your descendants after you in their generations, for an everlasting covenant, to be gone to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So in this passage, Abram recognized this great love of God, and in response, he did what all of us should do. He fell on his face in reverence. We see afterwards that God converses with Abram and reaffirms the covenant between them, it's important to keep in mind the fact, as we discussed earlier, that although the covenant was made and already reaffirmed once when Abram came to the land of Canaan, there hasn't been much movement or progress on the promises. Of course, Abram has a son with Hagar, but other than that, we don't really see a fulfillment of all of these wonderful promises described 
at the beginning of Genesis 17, and that of course brings our attention back to the great faith of Abraham, he continues to wait faithfully without any doubt in the promises of God. Now notably at this point, God changes Abram's name by adding one syllable so that his name becomes Abraham. According to Chrysostomus, the name Abram in Hebrew means traveler or one who crosses over. He believes that through divine providence, his parents, even though they were pagans, named him Abram to signify the course his life would take. And this teaches us yet again the importance of a person's name in our faith. Abram's name was like a prophecy that pointed to the fact that he would cross the mighty river Euphrates and inherit the land of Canaan. It's immaterial that his parents were pagan, God was still able to work through them. And now Abram becomes Abraham, which means chosen father. St. Ambrose of Milan teaches us that previously Abram was simply a father, however with God's promise, which will be fulfilled in the birth of Isaac, he becomes a father in a more significant sense. Of course, this refers to the fact that he will be the father of a son from his own wife Sarai, but on a deeper spiritual level, this is a prophecy concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Abraham becomes the father of many nations, out of which will come the Savior of the world. Why the change in his name then? Obviously, it's because of his faith. Let's continue reading Genesis 17, verses 9 through 14. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations, he who was born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, he who was born in your house and he who was bought with your money must be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people, he has broken my covenant. So in this lengthy passage we see the establishment of the sign of the covenant between God and Abram, which is circumcision. We spoke about the signs of covenants earlier in the story of Noah, and I told you then that whenever a covenant is made between God and mankind in the Holy Scripture, some kind of sign is typically established to remind us of the covenant. You remember that the sign of God's covenant in the time of Noah was the rainbow. That was the sign of God's promise to mankind that he will never again destroy every living thing on the earth through a great flood. And here we see circumcision as the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. God commands that every male child, whether born within the Jewish household 
or acquired from a foreign nation must be circumcised on the eighth day after birth. And I want to focus on a few points relating to circumcision in this verse. First of all, we can see a foreshadowing of God calling the Gentiles, or in other words, those who are not Jewish, uh, calling these peoples and these nations to himself in the fact that even foreigners living among the Jews were required to be circumcised. It's a prophecy that even those who are not descendants of Abraham could become the children of the promise. Second, as St. Cyril of Alexandria teaches us, the circumcision of the flesh in Genesis 17 anticipates the true spiritual circumcision that would come later. In other words, it is more important to be a child of God's promise spiritually in your heart than physically in your flesh. St. Cyril teaches us that just as the birth of the illegitimate child Ishmael came first before the birth of the child of the promise Isaac, so also did physical circumcision come before spiritual circumcision, because the time for spiritual circumcision had not yet come to pass. St. Cyril offers us a beautiful explanation of what true circumcision is. But the true circumcision is the perfect observance of the law, the cutting away and removing of everything alien to God, and the ability to pass beyond worldly things to approach the transcendent realities through understanding. Third, we spoke in the past about the significance of the eighth day after birth. I don't want to recapitulate everything that was said now. You can review the previous lectures to learn more about it. But I want to share what St. Cyril of Alexandria says about the eighth day. He teaches us that the eighth day is supernatural because it is the eternal day on which our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ accomplished his resurrection from the dead. So if you were to count the eighth day, for example, let's say Saturday to Saturday is seven days, that's one week, right? The beginning of the next week is Sunday. So if Sunday is considered part of that first week, it would be the eighth day. And of course, Sunday is the day on which our Lord rose from the dead. And that's why the eighth day throughout Christian history uh, going back as far as Genesis, has always had some kind of special significance. Let's conclude with Genesis 17, verses 15 through 16. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations, Kings of people shall be from her. So God changes not only Abram's name into Abraham, but also changes Sarai's name to Sarah. And according to Venerable Bede, a prolific Western commentator on the Holy Scripture, the name Sarai means my ruler or my princess. But the name Sarah, however, simply means ruler or princess. And this change of name signifies Sarah's role as one who shared in Abraham's great faith. For this reason, she became a wonderful example to all women. And this is why in our wedding 
right? We cite the example of Sarah to new brides, just as St. Peter mentioned her as an example of faith and obedience in his epistles. So what happens after this? We'll have to tune in next week and see. And glory be to God forever. Amen.